Hey everybody, welcome to the last official episode of uh, Pride Month. Thank you all so much for listening, I really appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed the stories and the readers this month. Uh, we'll be getting back to the old format of the show next week, so you're going to be stuck with me for the foreseeable future again. Um, thank you all for listening and uh, putting up with me and my subpar readings of extremely niche fiction. Um, thank you so much to all of my readers, to Sawyer and Dominic and Caroline and Evan. Uh, if you want to follow them, Sawyer is at queer underscore elf underscore club on Twitter. Dominic is at Domendez, D-O-M-E-N-D-E-Z-Z uh, on Twitter. Caroline is at Saucy Minx, S-A-U-C-Y-M-I-N-C-K-S. And Evan can be found at at Evan Tesserea, E-V-A-N-T-E-S-S-U-R-A-E-A. Thank you all so much to my readers. Thank you so much for to the authors who gave permission for their works to be used. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much to everybody who is going out and protesting and fighting and and just trying to secure rights for everybody in the nation who should have them. Black lives matter, gay lives matter, lesbian lives matter, trans lives matter, bi, uh, non-binary, asexual, pansexual lives all matter. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, I will now turn it over to Evan. Thank you so much. Draco Peristalsis by Evan Tess Murray By the time I noticed that the palms of my hands hurt, there was a faint glimmer of gray splitting apart the cave's darkness. I was alone. I had been alone for quite a while, probably. There's something about being in a strange, dark place that speaks directly to ancestral memory, to the tiny, scared mammal hiding from a world of larger, hungrier things. The things I was hiding from were definitely larger and probably hungrier. There was a gnawing sensation in my middle that might give way to hunger, once the fear backed off. My hands were abraded and bruised. I remembered falling on them as I fled into the embrace of the mountain. The gray light wasn't enough to make out anything but ghostly shapes, but I didn't think I was bleeding much. And at least unless our late microbiologist was very wrong, I didn't have to worry about any sort of infection. The creatures that had driven me into the cave, though, I didn't think they knew we were biologically incompatible. They had looked perfectly willing to eat me, assuming they could eat with those dilating, razor-edged orifices. With a silent moment of gratitude to my frightened mammalian ancestors for handing down genetic instructions about how to handle nearly being eaten by something much larger... I stood and stretched. The cave air was clammy on my skin, but it didn't smell like anything I expected. No sour stale mildew, no hint of quiet rotting sweetness. Mushrooms and lichen don't usually smell like much, but their food sources do. There was nothing here my nose identified as animal or even vegetable or mineral. They hadn't mentioned this part of my training materials. The most alien thing about a new planet is always the way it smells. At least if the atmosphere was breathable, which this was. I cracked my neck, did a quick inventory now that I'd shaken off the panic. Hands sore, muscles stiff, everything in seemingly working order. Stomach, considering complaining, because even though I'd eaten before I entered the field, running in panic uses a lot of calories. The hunger was a good sign. It meant that those animal instincts no longer thought I was in danger, and I was pretty willing to trust them right now. Rations on my belt 
tasteless, but considering the strange smell in the cave, I kept unconsciously trying to categorize it and coming up with something between wood smoke and rust. Tasteless was probably a good thing. I ate the bar quickly, took a drink from the canteen, and checked my pack. Everything was present. So really nothing was wrong, except the life forms I'd set out to study turned out to be way, way more aggressive than we'd thought they were, and a lot smarter, and I was trapped in a cave. And the rocks here reeked holy hell with our communication equipment. It hadn't been a huge problem, we just figured we wouldn't spend a lot of time underground. I wondered if they were even getting a location signal from me. Probably not, or they'd have turned up. It had been a skeleton crew even before we lost half our field team to a cryo malfunction, but as soon as they could figure out where I was, they'd eventually come for me. Guns blazing, if necessary. I edged toward the light. I didn't know how long I'd been frozen by mammalian instinct, but it couldn't have been so long that it was local dawn, so something else must have happened to allow more light to filter in. I hoped it was because the creatures had abandoned the cave. Something rustled underfoot. My earth experiences told me fallen leaves, but when I glanced down, I saw that I was wading through piles of something that reminded me of old socks or discarded balloons, only more brittle, almost papery. I tried to step quietly and made a mental note to make proper observations later. The cave walls had reflective particles like mica. I'd chip some off for our geologist at some point, and he'd probably go on about the strange silicates all over the planet. For now, it meant that as I tiptoed toward the light, the walls ahead of me sparkled. I rounded a corner and saw daylight. The light wasn't so bright that it hurt my eyes, but the colors were an assault after even a short time in the dark. Blue grasses, a dull white sky behind them. It was nothing like Earth, but still a welcome sight. Something in the small animal part of my brain froze me in place again. I slowly picked up a bit of rock from the cave floor and threw it out into the sunlight. My caution was rewarded. A sinuous shape flashed almost too fast to see. I had the impression of sharpness and silver, and the sunlight was blocked for an instant, almost as though I'd blinked. And then it and the rock, which I think never even hit the ground, were gone. I didn't shake for long this time. I did suspect I'd found this ecosystem's apex predator, though. It was smart enough to lie in wait for me, it hunted in groups, and it clearly figured it had me cornered. Damn. At least it was much too big to get into the cave, which was, frankly, a pretty small comfort. Without warning, the rock flew back toward me. It landed by my feet in the pile of pale, crackling things and glistened wetly. The papery surface started to dissolve, and I smelled something acrid. Right. Do not touch. I was starting to think Bartolomeo, our geologist, was right to call them dragons. I'd been pissed about it. We were trained not to do that, not to romanticize life forms on the planets we surveyed. I'd griped at him when he sent me out to study the dragons, but damn, they were huge and sinuous and terrifying, and apparently they trapped prey in caves and spit acid. If the shoe fits, right? At least there was no pile of treasure, just a pile of papery things I didn't understand yet. I couldn't toss my locator out as long as the thing was still there. It would eat it or destroy it, and I'd be stranded. What does a scientist do when she's trapped in a smallish cave on an alien planet by a huge thing that it seems increasingly appropriate to call a dragon? Science. It clearly knew I was there, so I abandoned all efforts at silence and pulled out my field recorder. 
The stylus was gone, but voice commands still worked. On, record, capture all, I said, and waited for it to indicate that it was working. Nothing much was showing up on the EM spectrum, but that was to be expected. No dangerous radiation, which was good, if this cave was going to be home for a while. With a rueful glance at my scraped up hands, I pulled on a pair of gloves. Too little too late, probably, but they were comforting. The familiar rhythms of collecting samples, conducting field analyses, and making notes for later research were soothing. Contrary to what one might assume from the dragon hunt, I'm actually not that sort of biologist. I study ecosystems, and I haven't done a ton of field work in recent years. Usually people bring me data, and I tell them how it all fits together. But we lost the folks who usually do this research in transit, so it was me, a geologist or a chemist. Bartolomeo doesn't know what to do with anything alive, and Mari isn't good at practical things. She's too busy looking at the microscale to notice them. I wished I'd conscripted one of the technicians as an escort. Maggie would have been glad to do guard detail. I didn't think her field weapon would have done much to the creatures, but at least there would be two of us trapped in this cave. Or I could have asked a pilot to keep a shuttle on flyover instead of waving them off toward Mari's collection site. Kicking myself wasn't helping. I tried to focus on the present. The wet rock had eaten a hole clear through to the cave floor. Mari would have been fascinated. I took a careful scraping. It failed to eat through the polymer collection swab and bottle, so that was something. On second thought, I bagged the whole rock and left it where I could watch to see if it eventually dissolved the bag. It smelled like an extinguished match. They're long and sinuous, I told the recorder, with shiny hide that has no visible evidence of scales or feathers, silver or gray in color, with a faint mottling only visible when they're at rest, which so far they mostly haven't been. Length is hard to estimate because the things are really fucking fast and I was running for my life, but should be measured in tens of meters. I gulped, very aware that I was talking, quietly but aloud, about the very creature waiting just outside the cave entrance to presumably eat me. Previously examined claw marks are made by digits on the outer edges of wings. They have multiple wings and apparently no terrestrial limbs, or at least no limbs without significant wing sail. Their movement is serpentine, but the wings are involved in some way I could not determine while running away. I was a mouse, carefully describing a snake so my descendants would know what to avoid. They have spots circling the interior end that may be eyes or other sensory organs. The interior end also has an orifice round that dilates open and is ringed by very sharp protrusions which overlap when the orifice closes. There is no visible tongue or similar structure. From behavior, it seems likely they swallow prey whole. There's apparently a liquid they secrete that may be digestive fluid. See sample uh, 197263. They may pre-digest prey. They can exhale through the anterior orifice. Their breath is hot. It was getting increasingly hard to talk, but I wanted this much of a record to survive if I didn't. I took a deep breath, strange sense again, this time with sulfur overlaying the rusty iron. I was watching from downwind and uphill using field glasses that have unfortunately now been lost and saw a group of five of the creatures approach a river where we'd previously observed their claw marks and what appeared to be 
partially digested herbivores. I watched for some time before I fell briefly into shadow. A sixth had flown over me. It was quite majestic from beneath, like a long, slender kite, and I was trying to figure out its wing attachments and method of flight when it called out. The sound was deep and resonant. It made me think of whale song. The other five rushed my hilltop. I ran, and despite the great distance, I was barely able to reach this small cave before they caught up to me. They were unable to enter due to their, frankly, enormous size. I observed social behavior both before and during the hunt and have concluded that I was deliberately herded into this cave, which might well function as a, a larder of sorts. At least one remained to wait or guard and has demonstrated that it will strike swiftly if I try to leave. It is my belief that we've stumbled upon an important predator, that it is likely vital to its ecosystem, and also that it would be difficult or impossible for humans to coexist with it in a way that did not negatively impact either population. My recommendation is to examine other parts of this planet to see what the effective range of this predator is. It seems too large to effectively fly long distances, so another continent might be free of them. Our initial landing site would not be appropriate for colonial action. I was momentarily proud of how calm I sounded, how objective, but my voice broke as I finished. I will set this to transmit continuously. For now, I can see no way out of this cave. I hope that you find me soon. I keyed the thing off and finally let myself cry. Not for long, though. My tears dripped onto the papery things underfoot, but didn't soak in, which meant they were water repellent, which made me curious about them again. People who run away to space just so they can look at new planets are intensely curious by nature. In the indirect light from the cave entrance, the things were clearly translucent. They were pale gray, and I could see my hand through them. Some of them were torn. I briefly wished for someone who could tell something from the torn edges, but the whole ones ranged in size from the length of my forearm to a few meters. They were basically tubes. I made some notes, then investigated one more thoroughly. They were between paper and plastic in texture, perhaps some sort of organic polymer. The texture was uniform and smooth. The smaller ones were stiff, but the larger ones were quite flexible. If they were from one of the local plants, I'd never seen it. And besides, nearly everything on the planet tended toward blue, with large flat leaves or long wide stalks. Fruiting bodies from a cave-dwelling fungus? But there was nothing visible that looked like it could be the source, and nothing I could find for a fungus-type lifeform to eat, either. I was up to my ankles in mysteries, quite literally. If they were some sort of animal casting, I would assume I'd find either fecal matter or regurgitated matter, just not just whitish tubes. I rooted around beneath them for a while and turned up absolutely no bones or bone fragments. The local wildlife, strange though it was, still had skeletal systems, and we'd found and analyzed the bones of several species, small and large. I'd been thinking only of the giant predator outside the cave until I realized the lack of bones almost certainly meant something had lived in the cave that could eat bone, and that was a very tidy eater. Scientists aren't supposed to jump to conclusions, so I turned on my headlamp and explored more deeply. Swish, swish of feet pushing through weird silvery tubes, distant trickle of water, no signs of life. 
The cave narrowed until I had to bend my knees and spine protesting. I found water trickling down a wall, and the cave floor dropped away. But I need real equipment to explore further. Besides, the tubes didn't come this far back. The water tested safe, so even though we're always cautioned not to trust field tests without a backup, I drank some and filled my canteen. Just finding drinking water kept the panic at bay. Eventually, my team would find me. They knew where I'd been, just not exactly where I was now. The dragons, the creatures, couldn't get into the cave. I had water. I had some food. It would all be okay. I made my way back to the wider area near the entrance, turned off my headlamp, and put my equipment in a pool of light to hopefully get a bit of charge. I curled up in a drift of mysterious tube things. You might think it would be impossible to sleep under the circumstances, but I found it impossible to stay awake. When I woke, the recorder was beeping at me. I thought for a moment that his battery was already dead, which should have been impossible, but it was just reporting a full memory card. I'd had it recording broad spectrum, and it wasn't successfully transmitting, so everything was staying in the local cache. I pulled the card, plugged in my backup, and reduced its recording spectrum. If anything happened, I'd turn on whatever seemed useful then. It wasn't ideal, but without anyone receiving on the other end, I would run out of local storage pretty quickly. It was bright again. The angle of light was different and the colors that flashed from the walls were more varied. I figured I must have slept all through local night and the recorder confirmed it. No sign that my team had been by, but what was I expecting? A note? Sorry, we couldn't get past the thing camped outside your cave, working on it. No, if they found me, they'd shoot the thing and that would, eventually, when they figured out how to actually kill it, be that. I'd slept in a pile of alien biological remnants, which was increasingly beginning to seem like a really, really bad idea. I hoped we were right about that whole biological incompatibility thing. They looked inert, but now that I wasn't terrified half out of my wits and exhausted from almost being eaten, I knew better than to assume anything was benign. Well, what was done was done. I threw a rock and the dragon threw it back, establishing that we were still playing that game. I ate a chunk of ration bar, drank water that tasted like wood smoke and rust, and settled in to wait and think. A soft, scritching noise interrupted my attempt to reason through my dilemma. It hardly mattered. Whatever I did, nothing I thought about would move the dragon from the doorstep. Its bulk blocked me from even drawing useful conclusions, as though it was sitting inside my head as well as outside the cave. So the strange little noise was almost welcome. In this changeless little place... It was something that moved. Before I could even locate its source, the sound was joined by another just like it, and another. They were scratching sounds, and they were around and above me, and there were, quite suddenly, a lot of them. My small mammal heart raced, uselessly preparing me to run to fight. The light shifted again, the glittering spots on the wall were bluish now and very bright. They reflected so much light my skin had picked up a bluish sheen. Reflected? Or were they glowing? Above me, one of the blue lights went out sharply and something long and thin dropped. Pain blossomed in my wrist, burning white hot and radiating up my arm. Maybe someone else would have jumped. I froze. It was wrapped half round my wrist, and I wasn't bleeding because it was burning me everywhere it touched. It was a flame in the shape of a worm. It contracted, raising one end, rippling, and the pain changed character. I retched, vomiting up my ration bar. 
That shook me from my freeze reaction just as several more blue lights went out. I gritted my teeth and fled to the back of the cave. The wrist pain was so much like burning that I shoved my hand into the trickle of water without thinking about it. The water spattered off the worm almost as though it was hot, but the worm itself convulsed and fell to the ground. I kicked it away from me with the toe of my boot. It curled in on itself a few times and stopped moving. My wrist was burned fairly badly, but I could still feel my fingers, and the cool water helped. I turned my light toward the entrance, my heart still pounding, my breath rasping in my throat. There were too many to count. Hundreds? Thousands? They writhed over and under each other, seemingly purposeless. I looked at my pack, now covered in grayish-white convulsions, and thought longingly of analgesic wound spray. Then I realized the seeming purposelessness was false because some of the worm things reached the spot where I'd vomited. They swarmed all over it. They opened at the front and sucked it in all that pre-chewed protein and starch swimming in stomach acid. And then they kept coming. I had nowhere left to run, so I stepped on the first few. Then when one started to climb my boot, I backed into the water. It died. So I started splashing water at them, then spitting it wishing the whole time that I had my pack with its canteen. My wrist was throbbing dully with every beat of my still racing heart, but I'd had worse burns. I just didn't want to think about how many more burns I'd have if I tried to press through the creatures. And where would I go? It was a standoff. They writhed away from the water. I couldn't leave the water. But at least I could take a minute to breathe and try to kickstart my parasympathetic nervous system so I could think. I wasn't just a small, terrified mammal. I was a small, terrified mammal capable of reason, damn it. They'd come from the shiny spots on the walls. They were long tubes, similar in shape though not diameter, to the papery things on the floor. They secreted some sort of chemical that burned and partially dissolved flesh. They couldn't bear the touch of water. They were whitish-gray, mottled, not segmented like a worm. They ate my partially digested ration bar. They were nightmarish and impossible to look away from. Every movement made me feel ill, some similarity to maggots, perhaps, triggering an ancient imperative to keep away from spoiled meat. I took a deep breath, stilled my stomach, smelled sulfur again, stronger this time. The dragons had chased me here. Without lifting my eyes, I keyed on the recorder still at my belt. I have an update, I said quietly. The cave I was chased into isn't a larder. It's a nursery. I wanted to say more, but it took me a few minutes to get command of my voice again, and while I fought against my panicking lungs for breath, the mass of worms nearest to me began to move differently. In the absence of a meal, because this particular meal was slightly more intelligent than planned, they were beginning to eat each other. That made sense. If they were dragon larvae, something had to happen to reduce their numbers. There was no way this planet could support regular reproduction at this scale. Most large predators are high case species, balancing a low number of offspring with high parental involvement. I guess that the larvae tended to winnow down their own numbers, even with a conveniently trapped human-sized meal, and that those few that eventually emerged from the cave would be cared for by the entire herd, flock, flight. Survival of the hungriest. They ate each other. I swallowed bile for the hundredth time. Their sucking, squirming noises were suddenly drowned out by a low, resonant moan that echoed through the cave. It was so deep and loud, my bones rang with it. And then it was answered more distantly, and more distantly yet. 
My whimsical side filled in the translation unasked. Hey, everyone. The food isn't cooperating. The kids are eating each other. Help. A good scientist isn't supposed to jump to that sort of conclusion. But I was trapped in the back of a tiny cave, cowering in a trickle of weird water, and a whole species was trying to survive by eating me. So I figured I could have a little leeway. Besides, a few minutes later, a small grass eater, basically a rabbit, ran into the cave, followed but quickly by two more. They were devoured too quickly for me to feel swim. They were devoured too quickly for me to feel smug at guessing correctly, but not too quickly to scream. I alternated between staring in fascination and looking away in horror. When the food animals were mercifully and totally gone, only about a dozen larvae remained, and they were huge. It was easy to see now that they were the sources of the papery castings on the floor of the cave. Each was at least the length of my forearm. They were coming toward me, all but the largest, which was quivering in place. I trusted the trickle of water to keep me safe and watched as its skin hide covering split at what I thought was probably the rear. It convulsed with a motion like peristalsis ripples running its whole length, and each time more of it came out of the skin. Confirmation, because what was left afterward had eye spots, the beginnings of limbs, the faintest hint of wing sail. Just as its slow-moving smaller siblings reached me, it began squirming toward the light of the cave entrance. Maybe I could wait this out after all. Unfortunately, it turned out they could tolerate water a bit better once they'd eaten, not to mention rear up and lunge. I learned this at the same time as I learned that my field trousers weren't much good against their secretions. When I flung one away from me, I also learned that the larval hide was warm to the touch dry and didn't burn when grasped from above. It was all very instructive, and I was about to get a dozen more lessons in quick succession. What happened next was the end product of a day spent carefully drawing conclusions based on my observations of the species and my hard-earned ecological knowledge, or possibly it was genius born from pure panic and millions of years of natural selection. I pressed myself into the water, soaking my clothes for a heartbeat for whatever good it would do, then turned and one arm shielding my face ran. The larvae lunged. I grabbed one and tucked it under my arm for later so I could pick up my pack. Several others found purchase on my legs, my abdomen. I felt the beginnings of pain wherever they found skin, and then I burst into the light and hot sulfur dragon breath was on my face. There were at least five. The closest orifice dilated open. I could see its edge segments so sharp and wet they shone evilly in the sunlight. The grass was blue, the sky was white, and the dragon was going to eat me. I pulled one of the larvae from my leg, where it had begun to burn into my thigh, and brandished it in front of my face. The dragon recoiled. I ran again, stumbled as one of them wrapped around a knee and I could no longer stay on my feet. The one in my hand whipped around madly and the underside of my forearm joined all the other parts of me on fire. I dropped it, staggered upright, kept running. They were fast, so, so fast. Running didn't help, but I couldn't stop, even though one leg wasn't working right. And then there were two behind me and one in front of me, whichever way I turned, and two in flight above me. My belt started shouting, Maggie's voice so familiar. On my mark, drop. Three, two, one, drop. I dropped 
and froze, larvae under me and on me, shielding my face even as the one under my arm finally got through my jacket and all the other layers to tender flesh. There was a sound like the world ending and after it silence and I felt my scream but couldn't hear it. The pain was finally too maddening. I ripped larvae from me, flinging them as far as I could. The one on my knee was somehow still there. Its skin had come off in my hand. It was shaking out half-formed wings. I looked under it at what was left of my leg. And that was all I knew for a while. They can do a lot with regen. It turns out regrowing nerves isn't actually as painful as having them eaten in the first place, but it's painful for a lot longer. I'll be allowed to walk on the leg as soon as I can reliably tell when my foot is touching the ground, hopefully before we touch down at our next stop. It's hard to complain, though. After all, how many scientists can say they've been eaten by a dragon? I bet I'm the only one. So that's my story. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Evan Tess Murray, uh, and I am very grateful to have had the opportunity to both read a story for this and read one of my own. I'm also very grateful that my little queer family got to spend Pride Month on Weird Tales. Uh, the podcast we're all on, if you want to hear more of both my writing and my voice, is This Planet Needs a Name. Uh, science fiction, hope, punk, audio drama. I also co-create Light Hearts, a deliberately silly sitcom set in a haunted gay bar, pretty much the polar opposite of the stories on this podcast. Again, I'm Evan Tess Murray. I'm remarkably easy to find because I am the only person on earth with that combination of names. Please feel free to look me up and say hi. And hey, stay weird. <laughs>